Hi everyone, I'm Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today. I've been a space and astronomy journalist for over 20 years. This is our weekly News Bites segment, where we gather up a bunch of interesting news that broke this week, and I will explain it. Now, I cover all of this in my big weekly email newsletter that goes out on Fridays. Dozens of stories, pictures, highlights, lots of information. I write every word. It's ad free. I think you'll really enjoy it. But we understand that some of you uh, prefer to have the news videoed at you instead of reading totally understood. But if you do want the newsletter, go to universe today.com slash newsletter. All right, let's get into the news. We actually delayed the shooting of this news bites segment because we wanted to find out if the Boeing CST 100 Starliner was going to finally launch. And from what we can tell from the time that we're recording, it did. Now the, the CST Starliner, this is the other commercial crew program that NASA had engaged with. So of course, we're all familiar with the SpaceX Crew Dragon, which can carry four astronauts to the International Space Station. And unlike past space vehicles, in this case, NASA pays per seat, they pay about $50 million per seat in the SpaceX Crew Dragon. And NASA also contracted with Boeing to build the CST 100 Starliner. And this is the same thing, a capsule capable of delivering astronauts to the International Space Station, it has room for five people. And we're not sure, you know, NASA will probably be using all five seats from from mission to mission. And it also has thrusters on board. So that can help boost the International Space Station, similar to what's done with the Russian progress. So if there's some falling out with the Russians, and they're not able to launch the progress anymore, there will be the Starliner to be able to do this. Now the problem is that the Starliner launches on an Atlas rocket. And the United Launch Alliance isn't building Atlas rockets anymore. They've contracted all of their final Atlas rockets to Amazon to launch their mega constellation. And so in the future, these things are going to be launching probably on the Vulcan rocket, but we haven't seen the first test of the Vulcan rocket. So it's been a long, complicated journey to get to the point that the CST Starliner is ready to fly. There was a problem back in 2019 when it was first supposed to do the test that it just did today. We're supposed to demonstrate its capability of being able to launch dock with the International Space Station. I won't go into all the details, but there has been a series of delays, issues, a lot of technical changes that had to be made. And it all culminated on today, another test. So at the time that we're recording, Starliner just completed its orbital insertion. And that was the part that it failed last time. So hopefully this time it has gone farther more successful and now it will dock with the International Space Station. With this successful test, it should be able to go and get flight proven. And the next step is that the crew members are going to be flying a mission to the International Space Station. And they're actually at the Kennedy Space Center right now, all the astronauts watching the flight of the spacecraft that's going to be carrying them to the station. So I know a lot of people are SpaceX fans and I am too, but it sure is great to have two separate spacecraft capable of carrying human beings to the International Space Station. Redundancy is a good thing. A competitive marketplace is a good thing. And now it looks like we're closer to having like a vibrant private space launch capability, which is pretty exciting. China is continuing to expand its plans for space exploration. We've been covering the exploits of China in space exploration 
pretty much since the beginning of Universe Today. And the Chinese have actually had a long-term plan for what they're going to do in space. They wrote their first version of their document back in 1992, and they had sort of a three-stage plan. The first stage was to just send capsules to space capable of sending you know, humans to orbit, and they were able to achieve that. Then they wanted to build some short-term space stations to test out the ability to do spacewalks, docking, orbital maneuvers, things like that. And they've been able to test that out. And then the last piece of the puzzle was to build a more permanent space station. And they've done that with the Tiangong space station. So with all of those main goals completed, in the last couple of weeks, we've learned that China has put out the next series of plans, what they plan to do beyond that. Now, the plans are very vague, but they've created a brand new agency within the Chinese space agency that's focused on their plans for lunar exploration. The chief designer's name is Huang Jin, and he is going to be focusing on all of the missions that will be carrying China to the moon and beyond. Now, we don't really know what it's going to be. But there's this mural that they painted inside the office for the crude lunar program office. And so you can kind of get a sense there's like, rovers, there's landers, there's various bases, orbiters, various stations that are going to orbit with maybe inflatable elements. You know, we're not really sure what this is going to look like. But we do know that they're very focused on continuing the exploration of the moon. Now, a lot of people ask me like, you know, like, what does this mean? Should we be nervous? Like, the moon is not a place that the military really matters. Like, you can't launch a nuclear missile from the moon and have it arrive at Earth in any reasonable amount of time. It makes so what it's about is China demonstrating that it is a technological superpower, that it has the ability to build its own space capability to launch humans to the moon and beyond. Obviously, in the early days, a lot of this technology was stolen or purchased from various other nations. But we're at the point now where China is starting to develop a lot of its own space hardware that other nations aren't doing aren't focused on. So it really is China's goal to be seen as a peer and maybe even the best space explorers out there. So we'll see how this all turns out. Obviously, they're very tight lipped about what they release and announce to the outside world. You know, they're not like NASA sort of putting all this material out online all the time. So we have to kind of read between the lines, we have to pick up hints, we have to learn Chinese um, to be able to find out what's going on. But one other interesting note that's kind of come up this is there's sort of tentative plans to send humans to Mars by 2033. So once again, we'll keep an eye on all of this and let you know as it unfolds. Lisa is now going into the refinement phase. The LISA mission is the European Space Agency's laser interferometer space antenna. And it's going to be a space based detector for gravitational waves. Of course, we've got the gravitational wave detectors here on Earth. And they have their limits, they're able to detect fairly rapid mergers between dense objects like two neutron stars colliding or two black holes or a black hole and a neutron star. Maybe they can detect white dwarfs colliding, but that's the various limit. But they're not able to detect the very 
slow, longer wavelengths, like say merging supermassive black holes, or, or maybe the, the background gravitational wave radiation across the universe. And Lisa is designed to be able to fill in all of the parts that the ground based observatories aren't able to do. We saw Lisa Pathfinder mission launch a few quite a while ago, actually, and it demonstrated some of the underlying technology that will be required for the detectors that will happen with Lisa. And so Lisa's continuing to move along. And they just completed the feasibility phase of the mission. So they're very certain that they're able to do it. The next step that they're now going into is the refinement stage where they take all of the technologies, try and figure out exactly how they're going to work. And then the final version is going to be called the implementation phase. And if this all goes as planned, Lisa is expected to launch in 2034 which feels like forever. Like it feels like we've been talking about Lisa for a long time. And yet it's still more than a decade away. But hopefully when it does launch, it will be able to detect some just amazing gravitational waves. It's got 2.5 million kilometer long arms where it will be sending these signals. And so as gravitational waves flow over, they'll reach one one of the spacecraft or one of the other spacecraft, and they will be able to register these gravitational waves as they pass this this three spacecraft constellation. So it's going to be a very sensitive instrument, push our understanding of the universe to the next level. But still, we got to wait 12 years. I can't wait. Take a look at this picture. Does it look like a doorway to you? Uh, it looks like a doorway to me now, but it's not. Of course, this is just a rock. Now this picture was taken by NASA's Curiosity rover uh, on May 7th, 2022 with the mass cam instrument on the rover. And it looks like a door like it really does look like a door. But what it really is, is it's a fracture of ancient layers of sand that have hardened into rock. And it's a fairly zoomed in portion of a much larger picture. And you can see various similar kinds of rocks across this entire landscape. But just the way you get the the shadow and the shape of the rock, it really looks like a doorway on the surface of Mars. And we see this all the time. Uh, there have been so many like you can think about the famous face on Mars, the pyramids, uh, we've seen a Sasquatch on Mars, there's been there have been dozens of very familiar objects seen on Mars. And of course, they're all just rocks. And so the technical term for this is periodelia. And this is where the the human eye our brain is looking for certain kinds of very familiar objects. It's why you see various familiar shapes in clouds or in when you stir coffee, things like that. There's something that the brain catches on to and it convinces you that it's real until you see a higher resolution image or you see it from another perspective or the shadows change. So I don't know whether we'll ever get another picture of it. You know, curiosity is moving on but it is just another one of these uh, periodelias on on Mars. If you enjoy the work that we do at Universe Today, why don't you consider becoming a patron? You become the people who support all of the writers, the video editors, audio editors, all of the people behind the scenes that can bring all of this news. It's not just me. It's a team of more than a dozen people around the world with salaries that I pay. Um, and your contributions goes to support our ability to make universe today the best space and astronomy news gathering organization on the planet. So go to patreon.com slash universe today. 
And if you support us on Patreon, I will remove all of the ads on Universe Today for you for life. Even if you stop becoming a patron, we'll give you behind the scenes as well as interviews with people on the team. So you could see who you're supporting other exclusive stuff that only goes out to patrons. We'll, we'll say your name, show you in the credits of the various videos that we do. And we really appreciate the support that you're giving us. So definitely go to patreon.com slash universe today. We finally see a Nova in real time. We've reported a Nova on Universe Today many times in the past. And a Nova is where you've got a white dwarf star, a dead star, it's a binary partner. It is stealing material from this partner. And the material wraps around the white dwarf and forms this shell. And when enough of this material coats the outside of the white dwarf, it detonates in a thermonuclear explosion and then clears itself off and then starts again gathering up all of this material. And when a when a Nova goes off, then the star brightens significantly. In some cases, it'll take a, an invisible star that is now visible with the unaided eye. But a lot of times you can see them with small telescopes, and they brighten over the course of a few days, they can last a couple of weeks, and then they dim down. And then years, decades, centuries later, the whole process happens again. But astronomers always find them after they happen. But for the first time, they caught one happening in real time. They were using the E Rosita mission, which is an X ray telescope, and they were able to just through pure chance be looking in the field of view when they saw this white dwarf explode as a nova. And they were able to then track this initial fireball phase through to the, the sort of brightening and then the cooldown phase. And it's pretty exciting to get this information in real time. Now, the e Rosita is a mission that is on the Russian Spectre RG satellite. And I think we mentioned a few weeks ago that as part of the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Germany shut down a lot of its organization with Russia. And this is one of them. So this instrument on board Spectre was put into safe mode waiting for the end of hostilities and for a more reasonable international collaboration between nations. So we won't hear from Eurozita again for a while. Insight probably only has a few months left. NASA's Insight lander has been hard at work for about four years on Mars. And its job is to listen very carefully with a seismometer to the interior of Mars for all of the quakes that are happening. And it's detected hundreds over a 1000 and some fairly significant quakes as well. We reported on one that was fifth magnitude, which is, you know, a little unnerving to be in a in an earthquake of that of that level. The mission was originally supposed to go for two years, but it's been working really well. And they extended the mission all the way to four years. But as with all spacecraft on Mars that are powered by solar panels, this awful clingy Martian dust is depositing onto its solar panels and getting thicker and thicker and blocking the view. When Insight started, it had about 5000 watt hours of power every Martian soul every day on Mars. And that is down to 500 watt hours per day. So it's now has 10% of the power that it originally had. And at a certain point, 
it's just not going to have the power to be able to run its instruments. And so NASA has decided that probably by the end of the year, they're going to have to shut it down. Now, I want to just like get right to the why don't they just like I'm sure in your mind, you're like, why didn't they just put a little brush on it or blow it off with some compressed air or have a squeegee or something. And I promise you, NASA has thought of this, that they have looked at the problem of dust on Mars, and how it coats these solar panels as a very serious problem. They were quite lucky with the Spirit and Opportunity rovers because you get these dust devils that have been passing by and they've been they called them cleaning events. And fortuitously, these dust devils would clean off this dust. The dust itself is electrostatically charged, it clings. And so you can't just sweep it, you can't just tilt your your solar panels and hope that it's going to just fall off. This stuff is like sticky. I'm sure you've you've experienced like electrostatic dust in your life. And so they're going to need to come up with some other special solution to do it. And so whenever NASA has to consider like, do we want to add some kind of dust cleaning system? This adds weight, it adds complexity, it adds cost to the mission. And when they've got a very specific budget, they've got a very specific time frame, they can't just go and add this additional complexity and functionality to the mission. So once again, a Mars spacecraft is about to run out of power thanks to Mars dust. All right, and the last story that I want to talk about could be one of the most exciting events that will happen astronomically in generations, or it might be nothing at all. So there's a meteor shower that happens every year around the end of May called the Tau Herculates. And these are caused by the comet 73P. It's got a longer name, but I'll give it 73P. And back in 1995, comet 73P broke apart and brightened significantly in the sky. It increased by a factor of 400. It was quite bright, a lot of great pictures taken of this comet at the time. And what's happened is the Earth is about to pass through the trail of the comet at this point when it broke up. And, and so there's a lot of issues that have to come together. But some some astronomers have been making some estimates that if we do actually pass through this broken up trail, then we could see a lot of meteors every hour. And so when you think about like you go out and you watch say the Perseid meteor shower, you see about 60 meteors an hour, you see about a meteor a minute. During a meteor storm, you can see as many as a meteor a second. And I saw the Leonid meteor storm in 1998, and it blew my mind. But there have been more powerful storms than that. Back in 1966, there was a storm that had tens of thousands of meteors per hour. The possibility, and again, I say this is a possibility, do not send me a complaint email if you don't see it. But there are estimates that we could see as many as 40 meteors a second, which is more than 100,000 meteors an hour, like 140,000 meteors an hour. It's a ludicrous number of meteors, but it will happen in a very quick period of time. So you're going to want to be outside at the right time to be able to see it. So what's the right time? May 30th for people in the Pacific time zone, you want to be out there at 10 o'clock 10pm Pacific time, or 1am on May 31st, Eastern Standard Time, or 5am or 0500 Greenwich Mean Time. And those are the times who will have night when we pass through this meteor trail. 
And again, it could be nothing. It could be nothing had happened. It's just a regular Tau Herculid meteor shower, or it could be the greatest meteor storm in our lifetimes. And I don't know which one it's going to be, but I'm going to be out there watching and I hope you do too. So again, set your clocks, set your calendar, May 30th, 31st. We had a lot of great interviews this week, which you should probably check out. I uh, had a great interview with Dr. Stephen Sweeney about beaming power in space, talking about how satellites could send power to other satellites and how that could be used in other ways, even down here on Earth. I interviewed Dr. Ashish Goel about the Lunar Crater Radio Telescope, about putting a giant radio telescope into one of the moon's craters on the far side to give us just an incredible view into the universe. And then I talked with Dr. Jonathan Jiang about sending humans to the outer solar system. What would it take to send humans beyond Mars to Jupiter, Saturn? What kind of time frames are we looking at? Very interesting. As I mentioned, I write a newsletter every week. It goes out on Fridays. You can get that at universetoday.com slash newsletter. I also do a podcast, essentially an audio version of all of the videos that I do here on Universe Today, as well as additional interviews with me, stuff that you won't hear anywhere else. Just go to universetoday.com slash podcast, or you can search for it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, the galaxy wanderers, your support means the universe to us. So if you like what we're doing here, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash universe today. All right, those are all the big news stories that we had this week. We'll see you all next week.